I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. Our scripture lessons for the morning come from Matthew and Mark's Gospels. I'm going to be reading just one verse from Matthew 9, verse 36. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then from Mark's gospel, chapter 8, beginning with verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. The author, Leo Buscaglia, says that one of the most compassionate people he ever knew was a four-year-old boy. The little boy and his parents lived beside an elderly gentleman. And just a few weeks earlier, that elderly gentleman had lost his wife. So the little boy decided to go spend an afternoon with his elderly friend. And when he got back home, his mother asked him, what did you say to your friend? And the little boy replied, I didn't say anything. I just sat on his lap and helped him cry. So like Jesus, so like Jesus. When Jesus met his friends, Mary and Martha, following the death of their brother Lazarus, he wept with them. Even though Jesus knew within an hour he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, nevertheless, he wept with them because he felt their grief so acutely. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the most complete picture of God we can ever have in this world. And today we focus on the deep and profound compassion that is such a central part of the character of God. The writer of the book of James declared, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, if you look up this word compassion in the dictionary, it'll tell you 
that it is a feeling of sorrow or pity for the suffering or misfortune of another person. And real compassion includes kindness and sympathy and empathy. I recall a striking example of compassion shown to an animal some 20 years ago. John, friend of mine, had a wonderful pet and companion, his faithful bird dog. Now, John and I were quail hunting buddies. And by the way, I once made a statement that God's two greatest creations in this world were a good woman and a good bird dog. <laughs> now, my wife chided me about that. She said, the nerve of you mentioning in the same sentence a good woman and a good bird dog. I said, honey, you just don't understand how wonderful a good bird dog is. I don't think she was persuaded. My friend John had an elderly 17-year-old bird dog named Michael. <clears throat> now, in his prime, Michael had been world-class bird dog, but age had taken a toll. He was, his eyesight, his hearing were almost gone. Arthritis had given him a, a uh, made him virtually a cripple. But he still yearned to do what he had always done. Now, John had two other young, very good bird dogs. So we had no problem there. But, oh, Michael yearned to go. Now, John knew that if we took Michael, uh, he would be good for about 30 minutes and then would just tag along behind us. Furthermore, we would have to lift him over every fence and over every creek. But Michael looked it up, up at us with those big brown eyes, which clearly said, please take me with you. I can't stand to be left behind. And compassion won out. John gave Michael two Advil tablets and then he took two himself, <laughs> and off we went to the fields. John was a compassionate man. Watch Jesus express compassion in our scripture lesson for the day. Jesus and his disciples are in the little village of Bethsaida, which is up in the northeastern part of Israel, on the Sea of Galilee. And some people had brought a blind man to Jesus, begging for him to heal him. And verse 23 highlights the, the sensitivity, the, the compassion of our Lord. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. No doubt the blind man was nervous because of the gawking crowd. And Jesus took him outside the village so they could have a little bit of privacy. Don't you know that this blind man remembered to his dying day how it felt to walk hand in hand with the Son of God. And then Jesus took a little bit of his saliva and put it on his eyes. The saliva had no therapeutic value. The touch of Jesus was much more important. And after Jesus' first touch, the man could see a little bit, though with a hazy kind of vagueness. He said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. And Jesus touched him then a second time. 
and he could see with 20-20 clarity. And then Jesus urged this man to go home rather than going back into the village. With sensitive compassion, Jesus knew that that family of this man needed this healthy adult with restored vision and that this man needed that family. Furthermore, if he had gone back in the village, all the attention would have been on the miracle, not the message of Jesus. Mark's the only gospel writer who tells us about this particular healing of a blind man. And we never meet him again in the gospel of Mark. But I can't help wondering about this guy. I wonder if he was part of the Palm Sunday crowd that welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem. I wonder if he witnessed the crucifixion. I wonder if he was part of the early church. Can you imagine this guy years later telling his grandchildren, saying to them, Jesus performed two miracles for me. The smaller one was he restored my vision. Ah, the bigger one. He died for me and gave me eternal life. If you will agree with me, and I think you will, that the world needs a whole lot more compassion. That raises two questions. First, where does that compassion come from? Where do we get it? And secondly, how do we grow as compassionate people? If our compassion does not come from Christ living in our hearts, it has no depth or persistence or staying power. I mean, if we just make a New Year's resolution, I'm going to be a more compassionate person. Friend, that won't last any longer than the dieting resolution. If I decide to be forgiving and compassionate only to those people who deserve it, that's not Christian compassion. If I care only for those people who are hardworking, honest, and virtuous, that's not Christian compassion. Remember, oh, this is important. Jesus did not save us when we deserved it. No. St. Paul wrote so clearly, and I want you to say it with me if you remember it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus referred to people like you and me as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now referring to us as sheep is not exactly a compliment. A sheep is about the most vulnerable animal on earth. I mean, it has no defensive weapons and can't even run fast. Without a shepherd, a sheep is helpless. When I was a boy living in upstate South Carolina, a friend of mine had four pet sheep he had a really large backyard fenced in with a small barn on it, and there was a little creek that ran through it. Plenty of grass, perfect place for sheep. But there was a problem. The neighborhood dogs sensed how helpless those sheep were. And at night, they tunneled underneath the fence, and one by one, they killed those sheep how utterly helpless those sheep were without a shepherd. Now, it might hurt our pride a little bit, but often the truth does. 
but our own, on our own, we are like helpless sheep up against the wiles of Satan. If Jesus Christ had not rescued us by the cross and the resurrection, if he had not filled us with his Holy Spirit, we would be as helpless as sheep without a shepherd. Remember, in our natural condition, we are just plain old sinners who deserve God's judgment. If we know that there's nothing about us that makes us worthy of God's love, then we will stand amazed that God's love includes even us. And then the words of that great old hymn really ring true. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is God's love for me. Once we have been saved by Christ, he injects his compassion into our hearts. And then we are equipped to pass that compassion on to all other people. And so the next logical question is, how can we grow our compassion and kindness for other people? And I want to offer two suggestions based on our biblical guidance. First, see other people as God sees them. See other people as God sees them. The book of Genesis tells us that every one of us was made in God's image. The New Testament tells us that Jesus died for everybody. God hopes that every person will become our brother or sister in Christ. Now, I'm going to give you a little exercise that'll test that. I want you to picture right now the American political leader whom you most dislike. No, I'll not name any names. I'll offer no suggestions. I'm talking about the person that when they come on TV, you cringe. All right, once you get that person fixed in your mind, I want to ask some questions. Is it possible that even that person is made in the image of God? Is it possible that God loves that person as much as he loves you? If the answer to those questions is yes, and you know it is, the next logical question is, can I find it in my heart to pray for that person? And friends, if the answer is no, the problem is with me, not that person. God's heart is full of compassion for all his people, but especially the least, the lost, the lonely, and the hurting. Our Lord who sees even a sparrow fall is touched by the pain and grief of every person. Every living, breathing human being is an extraordinary treasure in God's eyes. Chinese, Cubans, Iranians are as important to God as are Americans. God loves prisoners and prostitutes and dope dealers as much as he loves teachers and medical students and preachers. There are no 
only people in the sight of God. You know what an only person is? It's a person before whom you preface it with the word only. He is only a parking lot attendant, only a housewife, only a waitress, only a cop, only a sanitation worker, only an ex-con, only an unborn baby. There are no only people in the sight of God. Everyone is extraordinary. And if we are the church of Jesus Christ, we must demonstrate the compassion of Christ to all persons. Now, sometimes ago, the Holy Spirit is a blessing to me in so many ways, but occasionally the Holy Spirit grabs me by the scruff of the neck and um, disciplines me. It happened some time ago. Uh, there is a certain well-known religious leader who makes me angry. I will not name him. But in my opinion, he, un he, he, he has written a lot, speaks here and there. In my opinion, he has undermined biblical authority. He claims that some parts of the Bible are true and others are not. Some are inspired by God, some are not. And he has the arrogance to decide which are which. So he angers me. Oh, but God asked me some questions. Said, Bill, have you prayed for him lately? Do you even care about his eternal soul? And in honesty, and you have to be honest with God, the answer was no. And I felt ashamed. A bishop of our church used to tell about a census worker who went house to house. And uh, he knocked on the door of this small, unpretentious house one day. And the lady who came to the door was a weary mother. And, and he uh, said, Madam, I want to know how many there are in your family. First, how many children do you have? And she, in a relaxed way, said, Well, there's Johnny and Matilda. And there's Reginald. And there's Charles. No, 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 said the census worker. I don't want to know their names. I just want to know their number. And with an indignant rage, she said, they ain't got no numbers. They all got names. That's exactly God's attitude toward all of us. Even in this world of over 7 billion people, God knows everyone by name. He died for each one. He loves each one as much as he loves you and me. And therefore, he expects us to share his compassion with all of them. St. Paul wrote, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Here's the the first suggestion was see other people as God sees them. The second suggestion for helping us grow in compassion is this. Stand in that other person's shoes for a little while. Stand in that other person's shoes for a little while. Dare to look at the world from their perspective. And with a little Christian imagination, we can do that. Longfellow, that giant of English literature, wrote this. If we could read the secret history of our enemies... 
we would find in each man's life enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all our hostility. How true. Feeling someone else's pain opens our eyes. Only after my own heart was broken by grief was I able to truly understand what it's like to lose one's spouse or one's child. Only after my own sister had gone through a messy divorce was I able to understand the plight of divorced people. I think one of the reasons that God allows us to experience pain is to increase our sensitivity and compassion for other people. There's a poem by Robert Browning Hamilton that is so true, I call it almost Bible. And it's so meaningful to me personally, I hardly trust myself to recite it. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and not a word said she. But all oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Have you ever asked yourself how it would feel to be in the following situations? How would it feel to be paralyzed, unable to stand up, to walk, to dress yourself, to drive a car? How would it feel to be unemployed, especially during the pandemic, to have mortgage and car payments that you can't meet, to have children that you feel unable to provide for, how would it feel to have creditors harassing you night and day? How would it feel to have your spouse diagnosed with Alzheimer's? How would it feel to be the only black family in an affluent white neighborhood? And on the other hand, how would it feel to be the only white boy on a high school basketball team? I believe that some of the racial tension being felt in America today is more about money than race. There's still a vast difference between the justice received by the rich and the poor. As a general rule, the more money we can spend on lawyers, the gentler will be the brand of justice we receive. There's always more work to do in America in perfecting this great democracy. I have a pastor friend who told me about an experience he had a few years ago. He was teaching a seminar at Lake Junaluska, North Carolina. And uh, in the morning session, he noticed a man on the front row who was obviously drowsy. He kept nodding like that. Now that bothers us preachers. Yes, 150 years ago, they had 
ushers equipped with little rods where they could tap you a little bit if that was your problem. But that's, thankfully, that's gone now. But preachers don't like that. And this man, this speaker was thinking, why didn't the guy stay home? If he was up that late last night and can't stay awake, why didn't he stay home? Well, there was a lunch break between the morning and the afternoon sessions of the seminar. <clears throat> and a woman approached the speaker and said, sir, I'm the wife of the guy sitting on the front and you may have noticed he's very drowsy. Please let me explain. He's going through chemotherapy and they've given him a medication to offset some of the effects of the chemo. But a problem with the medication is it makes him very drowsy. And she said, I tried to talk him into staying home today, but he said, no, I want to be with God's people as long as I can because I don't know if the time will come when I can't anymore. Suddenly the speaker's attitude was transformed. Why? Because a wife had enabled him to stand for a moment in the shoes of her husband. One of my favorite stories from the great, great Guidepost magazine, uh, which has been a blessing for many of you for all through the years. True story. Boy named Joe, teenager, who uh, attended a private school in New England. When Joe had been quite young, he had had an accident which caused a dislocation of the spine. And that caused an enlarged area on his back and he had to wear a brace. He was very self-conscious about it. First week at the private school, all the boys were taken down to the local health clinic for a physical exam. And they were taken into a big room and told to take off all their clothes and put on the bathrobe. And that made Joe very nervous and self-conscious. So he got over in a corner of the room and undressed as quickly as he could and got into that bathrobe. After what seemed an eternity, he got called into the doctor's office. And the doctor said, hello, Joe, good to meet you. He said, I've looked over your medical record. And uh, he said, let me, uh, let me give you a quick examination. So Joe stood there very uncomfortably took off his bathrobe. The doctor looked him over. And sometimes doctors can be so wise and compassionate. This doctor put a hand on either side of Joe's head and he looked into his eyes. He said, Joe, do you believe in God? And Joe said, yes, sir. That's good, said the doctor, because the more you believe in God, the more you'll believe in yourself. And then the doctor went back around to his side of the desk and wrote something on Joe's medical chart. And then he said, Joe, put on your bathrobe and have a seat. I've got to go down the hall and check on the x-ray for another student, and I'll be back in just a few minutes. Joe sat down, and he thought, I know what he wrote on my medical record. Boy has an enlarged back. But then curiosity got the best of him. He slipped around to the other side of the desk and he looked on that medical record and underneath the heading physical characteristics, the doctor had written, has an unusually well-shaped head. Joe went to a mirror that was in the room and took a look and sure enough, he had a rather handsome, well-shaped head. Suddenly the emphasis of his life was changed from his back to his well-shaped head. 
Do you suppose that was the doctor's intention all the while? Maybe there was no x-ray down the hall to check on. That wise, sensitive physician had allowed the compassion of God to be funneled into a teenager's life. Finally, let me take you back to that blind man whom Jesus touched twice. In a very real sense, Jesus touches each one of us twice, you know. The first and the bigger touch is when he invites us to dump all of our sin at the foot of the cross and to trust him as Savior and Lord. But then there's a second touch. And that's when he fills us with his compassion for every other human being, even those we don't like. And the love we have received from Christ is not truly ours unless and until we are willing to share it with everyone. Jesus taught us whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we are just plain old sinners who deserve your judgment. But somehow, marvelously, mysteriously, you are making new persons out of us. You nailed all our sin to that old rugged cross. You conquered death on Easter morning and assured us that we would spend eternity with you. Now teach us to extend your love and compassion to every person we meet. Freely we have received. Help us now to freely give. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.